0: My guest today is Arnold Kling, blogger at EconLog and uh, recent contributor to EconTalk in a podcast on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And I wanted to continue that conversation. Uh, We're taping today on October 24th, uh, 2008, and this will air in the next week or two roughly. Uh, Sometimes events have taken over these podcasts. We'll we'll see what happens. But we're still in the midst of lots of uh, turmoil in financial markets. And I wanted to continue my education and I hope yours by asking Arnold both some fundamental questions about financial markets that I don't understand as well as some bigger issues that we wanted to uh, bat around. So Arnold, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Russ. So the first question I want
0: to ask is just a. Uh, logistic, procedural, technical question. Uh, Two topics we hear a lot about in this uh, debacle are credit default swaps and counterparty risk. Uh, My understanding is that Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and other players in this market uh, got involved in these, but I really don't know what they are. So tell us what they are or what they were and uh, how they played a role in this.
1: Okay, I'll try. I think... One thing I'll have to say is that I, I feel like an over-the-hill geek in this. Um, you know, so just as a uh, computer programmer who retired in the 90s wouldn't know anything about Java, I got out of the finance industry before credit default swaps became big. So, uh, but I'll do my best. First, let, let's talk about something that's simpler. Um, let's talk about a, a corn forward contract. So let's say I make Fritos. And uh, you're a farmer. You're trying to decide whether to plant corn or soybeans this year. And uh, I say, Russ, plant some corn because I'll tell you what. I'll pay a, I'll guarantee the price for your corn for delivery three months from now. You know, deliver me a hundred thousand bushels of corn. I'll pay one hundred fifty thousand dollars, something like that. And you say, okay, fine. That, with that commitment, I'll, I'll go with corn. And so we sign what's called a forward contract. And that means you're obligated to deliver to me those 100,000 bushels, and I'm obligated to pay you the $150,000. Uh, and so we'll settle that up in a few months. And if it's a personal contract between you and me like that, then there's what we would call counterparty risk. You may not grow the corn or deliver the corn, or maybe I'll go bankrupt in the meantime and not pay the contract. So that's our counterparty risk. counterparty means the other guy. The other guy. That's all. Counterparty makes it sound so complicated. Yeah, (laughs) it just just means that you might fail. Now, now how could we get rid of that counterparty risk? We could trade, instead of a forward contract between the two of us, we could trade a futures contract on an organized exchange. Did you ever visit the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or the Board of Trade while you were there? No, I've
0: always found future markets somewhat Uh, Mystifying, so
1: help me
0: and our listeners understand them better.
1: Well, just in terms of the atmosphere, I think it would be it would be interesting for you to contrast, let's say, the New York Stock Exchange uh, with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. The stock exchange uh, has a single specialist in each stock who's making an orderly market. So there's sort of one person in charge. Who's and,
0: matching buyers and sellers when you say
1: making an orderly market? Well, he actually uh, often does most of the tr- a lot of the trades against himself. So he has his limit order book, which is a, a list of orders. Like there are a bunch of people who say, well, I'll sell uh, my IBM as long as the price gets above 100 And somebody else says, I'll buy IBM as long as the price gets below 99 And so he's got these orders. And then as new orders come in, he'll... Let's, so let's say you're willing to sell at 99, and I know I've got somebody willing to buy at 100, and I'm the specialist. I'll buy yours at 99, and then I'll sell to the guy uh, who's willing to pay 100. And so they, um, you know, they mostly make these tiny little arbitrage profits, but they're supposed to make orderly markets even when, uh, when there are challenges, and so sometimes they're supposed to be willing to lose money to keep, keep the markets going. But it's one person in charge. You go to the the pits. You really should take a, a trip to the Board of Trade or the Mercantile Exchange, and it's chaos. There's nobody in charge of, of any one of the markets. It's just a bunch of – Kind of like the economy as a whole. Exactly. No one, bu- no one in chaos. charge. No one in charge. Chaos. Go <laughs> You've got a bunch of traders – shouting at each other wearing outrageous clothing a lot of football players because they're big and easily easily noticed a lot of former football players are tra- or floor traders and they're shouting at each other and they're making trades at each other and they're the ones who are making the market so when you send an order into the chicago mercantile exchange to trade you, it goes into this chaotic environment where these market makers uh, execute the order uh, so that's just an interesting side note. The and, and it, by the way, it works much better. Uh, <laughs> the reason that there are future that there are futures markets and things like stock indexes and treasury bills is that the markets in Chicago are so much more efficient than the markets in New York that most of the real, most of the more advanced trading takes place in Chicago and then New York kind of follows behind. Uh, so it's, it's 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 an interesting illustration of the the uh, spontaneous order versus the uh, managed, managed yeah. order. So, so but, let's go back to our but, corn. But, 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 but So our corn is going to be sold in Chicago when, when these crazy uh, mercantile exchange. How's that going to work? And how that's going to work is you're going to uh, offer, you're going to sell a futures contract on corn, you as the farmer, and all that means is you are going to, on closing day, pay the, f- the price of corn. Whatever it is, now the way you're closing gonna, day three months from now. Yeah, three months from now. So the way that's going to, well, the way it's going to work for you is you're going to. Let's say the corn goes way up in price. So it, it's instead of being worth one hundred and fifty thousand, it's worth three hundred thousand. The way you're going to handle that is, well, you actually produce corn, so you'll sell the corn three months from now for three hundred thousand, and then you'll pay it into the futures contract. You'll, well, what you'll, does you'll, that mean? So you'll. you'll Let's say you sold the futures contract. Uh,
0: uh, hang on. Uh, this is what I'm literally going to do. To This story is going to explain how I'm going to avoid my anxiety that you as Fritos may be out of business when I've gone to the trouble of growing all this corn. Right,
1: because you're dealing with the, the exchange. So let's say you've sold the futures contract for $150,000. You say, up oh, $150,000, that's more than the cost of that'll. I'll be comfortable with that. Yeah, that's a so good I'll, risk for that's me. Good, that's good for me. I can, I can produce corn profitably for $150,000. So you sold that, you locked that in, you're happy. Um, now, when
0: you say I've sold that, I've... I've Tell me again, very you, you've, mechanically. You've sold
1: a contract. You, you've you've basically made a commitment to the exchange that you will deliver cash equivalent to uh, what that corn would be worth three months from now. It's called cash settlement. So you're not actually delivering corn. You're delivering cash based on the change in the price of corn or the price of that contract. The way it, it is today, and three months from now. So if if it's so, if the contract goes up by one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, three hundred thousand. Three hundred thousand. You have to deliver one hundred and fifty thousand, which is the difference, an extra one hundred and fifty thousand. You have to deliver the yeah the one hundred and fifty thousand dollar difference. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so you do that, but you don't mind because you've got an extra one hundred and fifty thousand dollar profit on your corn. You're selling it for three hundred thousand instead of one hundred and fifty thousand. So right. you're cool with that. Who gets my money? Um. The exchange gets your money. The exchange then turns around and pays off somebody who won a bet. Let's say Frito's uh, was worried that the price of corn was going to go up, and so Frito's locked in their one hundred and fifty thousand dollar price for corn three months from now. The price went up to three hundred thousand, but Frito's so Frito's is going to have to go out and buy corn for three hundred thousand. You think they're in trouble, but in fact they're going to gain $150,000 on their futures contract, so it actually, the corn only costs them $150,000. So the exchange gives them the $150,000. So when you have- so I gave up the opportunity to, pro- as the farmer, I gave up the opportunity to profit,
0: but I wasn't at least worried that I wasn't going to get anything or that the price might go down. Right. Fritos gave up the possibility that the price of corn might go down, but they locked in the, their price of one hundred and fifty.
1: dollars right. So we
0: both were able to lock in the price by selling this promise to a- Somebody else.
1: Yeah, well, what? Ha- but so instead of a specific counterparty, both of us, both Fritos and the farmer, their counterparty is the exchange. So if, if you as a farmer, for some reason, default on your futures contract, the exchange is going to have to take the loss. So the exchange has to manage all this counterparty risk. And that's why an organized exchange is said to eliminate counterparty risk. And for- they're
0: going to, of course, take a, a premium. From each of us for the insurance we yeah, 're effectively buying, and it, that insures them against the possibility that some proportion of the large volume of trades doesn 't pan out
1: right and they 're going to impose margin requirements on you and suitability requirements and capital requirements because uh, they, you know, they don 't want to be dealing with defaults they just want to they just want to settle up at the end and so um, so that 's an exchange and that 's how an exchange supposedly eliminates counterparty risk. And a lot of what we're hearing about credit default swaps, and I'll explain what credit default swaps are in a minute as best I can, is that we would be better off if they had been traded on an exchange. And in fact, there was a a, a breathless Washington Post expose about a week and a half ago of the uh, battles battles between different regulators. It was actually a turf war, but it was battles between different regulators over whether to require Credit default swaps and other derivatives to be traded on exchanges. How could you require something to be traded? Trade on exchange. I mean, that's a good question. Wouldn't it
0: normally, if it were a good idea, people <laughs> would like the idea of it, and it would emerge, and you might, the government might want to regulate it in certain ways, as they do the other exchanges. But why would you? How could you force people to trade it? Do you um,
1: know, that's a good question. I guess you might uh, somehow make it illegal to trade these. Privately, yeah. Privately. Okay. Um, Sorry, so go but, ahead. Yeah. Um, but in any case, yeah, so these people, there are a lot of people who, who believed then, and, and even more who believe now, that, that the real problem with CDS, credit default swaps, was um, counterparty risk. And if you put them on an exchange, you'd get rid of the counterparty risk, and life would have been much better. Uh, I'm going to argue against that, but first let me explain what a credit Good. default swap is as best I understand it. Um so uh let's say you own a uh General Motors bond that's gonna pay you you know five, six percent or whatever, and you're a little nervous that General Motors may actually some some point default, so uh, this is a five percent
0: or six percent bond that's gonna mature twenty years from now, and in the meanwhile, the Chevy Volt might not make it. It could become a solar powered car that puts them out of business. They could just get beaten by the Japanese, etc. American, decisions. Any, anything competitors,
1: yeah. Right, anything could happen, and you won't get your principal back, and you won't get your interest. And so, uh, somebody offers you an ins- basically an insurance policy against that. That if the that if that bond defaults. Now the, the contract could be written in terms of that particular bond that you own, or it could be written as a generic if General Motors, you know, Default goes, goes yeah. bankrupt, or something. I have to interrupt. <coughs> the bond is already a somewhat less
0: risky, hedged thing because the stock is riskier than the bond. The bondholders are in the line. In the case of a bankruptcy, there be some assets yeah. for sure, and and bondholders would be first in line.
1: Right? That's nice but but you have to realize that are, there are a lot of uh, institutions that own bonds that are that have a need to have those bonds rated in a certain way like AAA, AA what have you. And so in some sense the risk that you're worried about isn't isn't just that it could default, but that it could slip from AAA to A and then all of a sudden you're violating some agreement with your with the people who Invested money in you so if you're an institution and you 've got these bonds and you're supposed to be having triple A bonds and all of a sudden they get downrated
0: because not because Jim goes out of business just because it might be the more risk, likely
1: the risk goes up so that so uh, again, a credit default swap would sort of guarantee that to you that okay th- this can't possibly be below triple A because I've got this credit default swap so how would it work so um The way it would work is if this event... Okay, so you pay a fee. Let's say you're the institution holding the bond. And let's say I sell you the credit default swap. So you pay me a fee, just like an insurance premium. And in return for that fee, uh, I make a promise to you that if this bond ever defaults, I'll make good any of your losses.
0: Which preserves the... Triple A ness more than
1: preserves a triple A ness. Yeah, it absolutely you know, gives, makes you have a nice guaranteed asset. Yeah,
0: so but it, so it of course raises the next question, which is how do I know you'll be there to pay off?
1: Okay, and that that would be the, <coughs> the, the counterparty risk in credit default swap market. Mm-hmm. Um, is, and so now you can see where maybe if you had an exchange, these things would work. Now my now maybe I can get into my argument about why I don't think an exchange will work. Um, and that's because. But let me, let me just okay, sure, let me back, just make back. sure. Let
0: me get the institutional component straight. I'm a pension fund, yeah. or um, what else might I be? Uh,
1: insurance company. An insurance company,
0: and I'm holding GM bonds as part of my uh, investment portfolio, which is in theory one of the safer parts because I have equities as well, have other kinds of bonds. I'm worried. I've got some legal requirements about the riskiness of my portfolio, and I'm worried that they're. GM could slip, so what do I do? I go to you, and you're are you AIG, for example? Yeah, I
1: could be a, a big insurance company or conceivable. Who else would,
0: was offering these these the credit
1: default? Sh- you know, I, I don't really know. Okay. To be honest, I'll, I suspect that even some investment banks were doing it, but. There is this question of who could offer these. But that, I mean, Okay, go ahead. so put
0: that aside. But let's say you're an insurance company. I'm, I'm worried about this. I go to you. We make a contract that says if GM goes bankrupt or if if GM doesn't pay off my bond, which are two slightly different yeah. things, then you're going to make them good. 100% too. It's okay. not just I don't get just some of it back. I'm yeah. going to get the whole thing back. So now supposedly I sleep well at night. Because yeah. I've covered my risk there. And the only risk I have now is that AIG, or whoever this is, would go bankrupt. And, of course, there's regulation of AIG. It's got to have certain credit requirements and assume that's...
1: Yeah, and, and, and it'll have a very strong credit rating itself. We, people talk about renting their uh, credit ratings. You know, so, a, a very highly credit rated f- firm... C- can make use of that fact... Earns a premium in this business. A premium. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so
0: um, one argument would be, though, that since there's still risk, because AIG could go bankrupt, which, of course, they did, and then the, in mm. case the government didn't bail them out, then I would be, as the holder of that um, credit default swap, is that the formal, is that yeah. the language? Um maybe it would have been better if, if we'd been able to trade these on a futures market against GM's yeah, right. failure to pay off its, its bonds but you think that's wrong
1: yeah or not like, so good yeah i i think that i think that there's something fundamentally untenable about a credit default swap and that is that um in in the corn example there was a natural long and a natural short there was somebody uh, Frito's was in a natural position to want to buy the futures contract. The farmer was in a natural position to want to sell the futures contract. In the credit default swaps, I don't think there's a natural seller. That is, you know, you can understand why there's a natural buyer. The pension fund is afraid of risk, but who is a natural seller? Nobody really. It's you know, so when when I posed that question on my blog, somebody said, "Well, insurance companies can sell stuff. We have insurance in." Uh, Uh, property and casualty insurance, we have life insurance, but insurance is a very different thing than a market of natural longs and natural shorts hedging each other. Insurance requires lots of capital, it requires lots of reserves, and it requires very uncorrelated risks. So for credit default swaps, AIG might have had a lot of capital, and maybe they had enough reserves. But there's this issue of uncorrelated risks. If you're a property casualty insurance company uh, and you've got insurance all around the country and there's a hurricane in Galveston, well, maybe you you survive. But if there's a sort of universal event that can hit the whole United States, you're not going to survive. And with credit default swaps, there was, I think, the potential for lots of firms to turn bad at once, and in fact, that's what happened, and so, and that, so that makes it. You know, I don't see how the exchange can solve that problem. I mean, uh, so if 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 you're offering, you know, a futures market has an exchange with lots of small traders, and even though that each of them is small, uh, they they yeah, have the a very small different. probability <clears throat> that anyone of them will default. With a credit default swap, I don't think you, could, you have the same thing. I don't. The exchange cannot manage its risk just with a bunch of small people offering these credit default swaps.
0: Well, let's put that to the side. It's an interesting side note. But I think the, what does all this have to do with the mess we're in? What role did credit default swaps play in Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac? What is, okay, what's
1: again, story? I don't know enough institutionally to know exactly the role. The the accusations that I'm seeing are first of all that they made it appear less risky, made things appear less risky than they did. So if the the sellers of credit default swaps, so let's say I buy uh, a a mortgage uh, a mortgage backed security, I think I may be able to get a credit default swap against that security and so that may enable me to th- to think that i've got uh less risk the other thing is that a lot of these companies that went bad i think went bad either because they had a they were had sold credit default swaps i think aig being the most notable example or because there were credit default swaps involving those companies and and this is this is where i think why I think it's sort of an untenable situation. I th- you know How can you sell a credit default swap? Well, maybe you could have lots of capital and lots of reserves, and that's how you do it. But I think the way they were really sold, the way the sellers really thought that they would meet their obligations having sold credit default swaps, is that if they saw things start to go bad, so let's say I've sold you this default swap on the General Motors bond, and I see... And some bad news comes out about GM. And so I think, oh, I might have to make good on on this swap. One way I can protect myself is to go out very quickly and short GM bonds or stock. And so if things get worse at GM, I'll make money on the short, and then that will offset some of my costs of making good on the default swap. So everyone who's sold these credit default swaps, I think, has this contingency plan in their minds that they're going to go out and short the bonds and stocks of companies that start to get into trouble. Now, you can see where individually that might make sense, but collectively, the effect of that is to put huge downward pressure on firms the minute they get into a little bit of trouble. So that's what's called systemic risk.
0: Right, but... How would that work in the mortgage market? If I've, I'm Bear Stearns. I'm holding uh, this mortgage-backed security. That all of a sudden in two thousand and six, in two thousand and five, it was just seemed like a, the sweetest deal of all time. Housing prices are going up. All of a sudden in two thousand and six, it starts to dip back down, and, and the default rate and foreclosure rate jumps up. And I realize, oh my goodness, that okay. that's not going to be as attractive as it turned out to be.
1: Okay. Well, imagine that you know, go back to where the days of yore when Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae did not have an explicit government guarantee but only a a line of credit and then whatever too-big-to-fail implicit thing was. So, um, you know, let's say June, July of this year. And you are a pension fund holding a ton of Freddie Mac securities and you're reading in the newspaper that they're taking some big losses. And you say... I think I'd like a credit default swap against Freddie Mac, just in case, you know, because I've got so many of these securities, it'd be really embarrassing to me if they turned out that they went bankrupt and they didn't, in fact, guarantee them. So um, I'd like uh, a credit default swap. It could even be against their debt. So you go out and you buy credit default swaps. The people who sell them to you turn around and sell short Freddie Mac's debt in stock. Well, after a while, Freddie Mac's stock has plummeted. It looks like they don't have much capital. The interest rate on their debt is high. It looks like it's going to cost them a lot to borrow to uh, stay in business. And the whole thing just cascades on itself. Do you think that's what happened? I think that happened with a lot of companies, yes.
0: Well, let's go back. I want to go back to, I think it was last March, to the first domino, which was Bear Stearns. There are probably some preceding dominoes. Um, And you and I talked about this, I know, off the air, and maybe we talked about it in an earlier podcast. But I'm going to revisit it, because I know a little bit more now than I knew then, and you may not know more. You knew a lot then, so I don't know where you are in the knowledge curve. But um, at the time, it's kind of... um, Those were the... uh, Talk about days of yore. They were what... uh, seven months ago. It seems like an eternity ago. We were in such a different world. I remember um, thinking about being asked by people what whether there was a chance that X, Y, or Z would go bankrupt. And I thought, well, of course not. It's not going to happen. And if it did, it would be such a catastrophe. That would be the least thing you'd worry about. But in fact, all those dominoes fell. So, or many of them. So let's, but let's go back to Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns, is an investment bank that has a hedge fund operation that has been buying a lot of mortgage-backed securities, uh, many of them subprime, having subprime loans in them. And suddenly we're going to find – and it came out of the blue for us. I mean, obviously for the people involved in Bear Stearns, they were probably starting to worry about it in advance of that famous weekend. But on a particular weekend, we come to find out that uh, Ben Bernanke and Henry Paulson have decided that it is imperative that Bear Stearns be acquired by somebody lest they fail. And the l- argument at the time was if – because if Bear Stearns fails, oh my gosh, Lehman Brothers could be next. So we've got to stop that from happening. And uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to go back again as if it were ancient history. It's not it's a few months ago, but it's interesting to go back and – and look at the arguments that were made at the time and how they panned out the arguments that were made at the time were it, 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 was, it was it was there were no there was no alternative it had to be it had to be done and what was done which i thought was very strange for a, a constitutional democracy was that jp morgan correct was jp morgan
1: bought them yeah. bought them at a
0: at the time at a, at a sweetheart deal right there was no auction um there was claims that, well, there weren't that many people who could buy them, but they they were bought, and they were the, – the claim was this was necessary because um, if Bear Stearns failed – and I think we did talk about this on the air – they'd go into bankruptcy court. They'd go bankrupt, and then the next thing you know, all these other financial transactions that Bear Stearns was acting as a sort of clearinghouse, and I don't have no idea what they were actually doing, they'd be all tied up. The whole system would freeze up, and we'd have we'd have we'd have a frozen credit market, which of course is what we ended up with, ironically. Uh, maybe, maybe it was claimed um, in the latest crisis. So, what happened there? Do you, do you understand what happened to Bear Stearns?
1: Not specifically, but let, let, let me guess this way, that um, Bear Stearns and other investment banks and even some large commercial banks are engaged in some very short-term trading with each other. I mean, sort of, it, there's something called the repo market, where um, I sell you a treasury bond and I agree to repurchase it in a week. Uh, and it's a way of carrying these securities for very short periods, and it's a very thick market. It's actually the market, when the Fed intervenes, we say that the Fed changes the Fed funds rate, they typically intervene in the repo market. So they'll go long repo, I think, if they're trying to reduce interest rates, and short repo if they're trying to increase. I, I may have that wrong. <laughs> but the um, uh, So it's a very important market, and there are a lot of... Things other than treasury bonds that are that are carried on, on in this repo market. Um, it's characterized. It's very important since since you're you're holding these securities for a week that the credit risk be essentially zero. Because if you had a one percent default risk, uh, and you had to earn enough interest in one week to make up for one percent default risk, I mean you'd have to charge hundreds of percent. Interest to do, to make that up, and so, um, so it's very important that this be uh, that the, the default risk be low. Uh, <coughs> presumably, Bear Stearns was trying to trade everything in these short term markets, including its mortgage-backed securities and so on. So if all of a sudden people are starting to get skept- uh, just the slightest bit skeptical that these mortgage-backed securities are going to come through, they're going to are going to going to default, then they're going to take huge measures. They're either going to charge very high interest rates or they're going to require what's called a large haircut, which means um and and given the 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 counterparty risk that's involved in the repo market, what a haircut means that um I will lend you based on 100000 You have $100,000 worth of collateral that you want me to lend you money based on, but I'm only going to lend you based on $99,000 worth. You have to post the full $100,000 of securities as collateral, but I'm going to cut off 1% of that just in case over the next week there's a drop in value in that collateral in addition to you defaulting. Which, which would be the, the the circumstances in which I'd have to take take that collateral? You have to default, and just in case while you're defaulting that it it falls in value, I'm going to take a haircut. So what I th- suspect happened with Bear Stearns is that people started demanding larger and larger haircuts, or were or you know ridiculously high interest rates uh, on some of that collateral because they so they saw signs that that collateral might not be worth anywhere near what Bear Stearns said it was or you just couldn't even figure out what that collateral might be worth because it would have these uh, dodgy loans underneath it. So... So here's... I'm going so, so, to okay. we'll go, go stop you there. Okay. I'm going to stop you there because here's the next question.
0: I'm going to try to bring us up to the present and move us uh, toward away from some of these details for listeners who are maybe ready for some more philosophical um, content. Yesterday... Um, in, in sort of a, what I suspect will be seen, I'm afraid, as some kind of landmark moment. Uh, Alan Greenspan uh, flayed himself publicly, uh, beat his breast, said mea culpa, took a few lashes, and said, "You know, I just my whole worldview, my ideology uh, was wrong for 40 years. The evidence seemed consistent with it, but it turned out, <coughs> turns out, laissez faire is a horrible idea." You know, I thought, I thought. Of course, that
1: isn't what he said. That's what the media
0: said. Well, what he said, yeah, no, the, me- a- the way the media, some of the media, not all of it, but the way it was interpreted by some was that, was that, that Alan Greenspan had admitted finally that uh, markets can't regulate themselves. Now, what he did say, I think, I'll paraphrase it, but I think he did say, which, which I think is challenging to those of us who are market oriented. He said, market oriented, hardcore. Market folk like myself, I'll let you speak for yourself, Arnold. But what he did say is that, you know, I thought banks would look out for themselves, and that that would be sufficient to prevent this kind of uh, mess. And in particular, he's referring to derivatives and mortgage-backed securities that, that cascaded through the through the financial market, like we're just talking about. And obviously, n- no, the biggest fan of capitalism, whether it's Milton Friedman or Adam Smith or Mises or von Hayek, you know, n- nobody suggests that people don't make mistakes. People do make mistakes. Markets don't work perfectly. Sometimes people overgrasp, overreach, take on too much risk, ignore their own apparent self-interest, or make an error. And what I find interesting for me, the crucial question of these stories of, of Lehman and Bear Stearns, and even to some extent Fannie and Freddie, even though they're quasi-public, is that did the participants see this coming? Do you think they... They they realized that they were on the edge of a precipice, or did it was it a big sandbag in the back of the head, and all of a sudden the lights are out.
1: well the 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 story that how could they not know? Well, the story that you want to hear is that the evil CEOs knew exactly what they were doing, and they were looting their shareholders along the way. That they knew they were loading their companies with risk, but along the way, as long as they were raking it in, as long as they could disguise the risk or postpone the risk. They could take bonuses and golden parachutes and 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 do it fine. I it, that's a great compelling story. I think it's a fictional story. I think they actually thought that they were not putting on as much risk as they were. I mean, I'll give the one example. I I detest the Freddie Mac CEO Richard Siren, but I don't believe for a minute that he knew. That he was radically endangering the company. I think he was warned that he was endangering the company by people underneath him, but he said those people must be wrong. I, I, I came to this company. And this has a company has a reputation of resisting helping uh, a, the affordable segment of home buyers. They're conservative, and they just they're wrong. And the risks are not as big as they think they are. And and so he genuinely believed that he could expand into subprime and other areas All day and yeah, uh, without compromising indi- the the soundness of right. the company I, you know, it, 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 if you had told if you had told him in a convincing way uh, that this was if you'd shown him a movie of the future, and this right, is sure. what this is what will happen if you go into this he would not have done it. And I think that's probably true for most of these executives. For the typical banking executive just didn't understand. That's why, why I keep referring to the suits versus geeks divide. I think there were some people at lower levels who saw this. Who these I'm, are the geeks. These are the geeks. The technical, the, the technical people, the modelers and so on, who saw it. I'm, I'm sure that there had to be people. You know, I, I even was talking with somebody at a congressional committee suggesting that they could they could ask for documents from Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae from their economists about the potential for a, that there was a home price bubble i you know if if there were so many pe- there were enough people talking about it dean baker paul krugman Bob Schiller, Ed Leamer. There were lots of people talking about home prices being too high.
0: These are not obscure corners of the...
1: Yeah. I'm sure that there were economists at Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae worried about it. I'll tell you back when I was at Freddie Mac in the late 1980s, the economics people wrote a memo saying that California and Massachusetts had experienced high home prices and we should take steps to limit our exposure and we did. I mean, that's... So, again, I, I think there are geeks down at that level who understood that. I think somehow the hubris at the top just overwhelmed that. And I'm not sure that that you can say that government would have done it. I mean, government was aware of all these things. They were aware of credit default swaps. They were aware of house prices, and they were aware of the people worried about the bubble. But you know, nobody tried to... Impose the types of regulations that would have stopped this, you could have imposed tough capital requirements throughout this what I call the American industrial policy of housing. I mean it is really the the analog of the Japanese manufacturing export sector for the United States. It's just as Japan coddled and combined government and banks and companies and assembled them together. To make a a manufacturing export sector, the U.S. combined government, quasi-government, banks, uh, and private firms to support the housing sector. This was our industrial policy, and there are plenty of things that you could have done along the way to say, whoa, this this is out of control, Let's let's require people to make down payments, let's require... Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae to set aside enough capital to deal with what could, could be a big potential drop in home prices given how far, fast they've risen relative to fundamentals. You know, so all the regulatory tools were there. We don't need more regulatory tools. What you needed was uh, you know, better foresight and will to use them, and that's, that's not something you can always assume exists.
0: Okay, well let's, but let's strike the other approach, which is, of course, we could have stripped out the industrial policy and let home ownership be an emergent, voluntary, non top down, uh, non subsidized activity. In which case, we'd have had lower home ownership rates, and none of this would have happened. But the real puzzle, I think, why why Greenspan was forced to to grovel yesterday was that even with the quasi public and explicit public tampering, steering of this market. It's surprising, I think, to most people, because certainly no one anticipated the full effects. There were people who said housing prices could fall. So right. to me, the puzzle is, if the government had let Bear Stearns fail, might that have been... What else would have toppled? We don't know, of course, I, but well, I, would the whole thing have fallen I, it depends
1: apart. depends what you mean by, by fail. Um, if, you do, if you mean throwing them into bankruptcy courts so that all their assets and liabilities... Uh, get tied up in court, then I think you immediately destroy every other Wall Street firm and every firm that has a, a transaction with them. So that thats, that's
0: a strange thing, isn't it? Don't you find that bizarre? Did think about that? Forget all this. Well, we just had a very uh, nice overview of systemic risk. Are you telling me that? That the nature of Wall Street that had evolved in this at this by March of two thousand and eight was such that if any one of these investment banks failed, the whole financial system would collapse because that 's a very it um, 's a very strong claim
1: yeah <laughs> um, okay uh, but oh, and, I, and was well, no
0: one I, else did did anyone worry
1: about that Oh yeah, I think people did um, maybe maybe not. As much as they should have, or maybe they didn't, couldn't come up with a better solution. But yeah. no, it was not—it it was not a robust system in that sense. But the thing is, bankruptcy d- need not have been an option, right? You could—you know, what what they did were th- sort of letting someone else buy the company and then buying some of the most toxic assets. They made
0: the sale
1: of Bear Stearns
0: attractive by guaranteeing thirty twenty nine or so billion dollars worth of assets worth that were of point. unknown value right. supposedly yeah so the, Think how small uh, that number is by the way right compared to twenty nine billion yeah, but that wasn't enough yeah, that, that did was, not
1: save the system right right and uh no the, the 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 investment banks and banks managed to load up on a ton of risk now um you know, one way to look at it. This is this is Robert Merton's calculation that uh, the value of housing in in the U.S. had it reached something like twenty trillion, and then it lost a let's say a quarter of its value. So that's a five trillion dollar loss. That's sort of spread throughout the system. Some of its homeowners, but not very much, because homeowners didn't put very much down on their right. uh, on on their latest home. So a lot of that risk that you know five trillion dollars is spread throughout the financial system, so you can imagine that there 'd be a bunch of companies that would be in pretty deep trouble as a result right, of how
0: what would you say is the size of the u s capital stock sixty trillion oh, or
1: yeah seventy yeah. yeah
0: so five trillion is you know it 's yeah. a bad year but yeah, yeah. why is
1: it <laughs> well you're right. you 're right you can survive that i, I mean, An interesting comparison is with the uh internet bubble, which destroyed you know lots of wealth relative to what the total wealth at, at the time and we let the firms involved fail you know the you know a lot of venture funds yielded nothing you know companies that invested in internet stocks did very poorly and a lot of internet companies went out of business we recovered from that i think that is actually a better model for how we should be handling this this situation um i th- i think The challenge with investment bank is to find an orderly way to liquidate it. I mean, the nice thing about internet stock, when it goes, goes, it goes. There's not this cascading effect. So to find, but I think there are orderly ways to liquidate things. Certainly, there are orderly ways to liquidate banks. I mean, the FDIC does it all the time. And the what's missing in this crisis, to me, is lots and lots of banks being liquidated, because. That's. It seems to me that if if they've lost money and they're insolvent, that's what ought to be happening. The injecting capital into them. I mean, that's not what we did with the internet stocks. We didn't say yeah. they've all failed. Let's inject capital into them. We said let them fail. And um, I, that's mysterious to me. I literally, I, I do, cannot tell you why the policy isn't to try to find orderly liquidations. I can understand Probably. why you wouldn't throw them into bankruptcy. But I don't understand why we don't go for – attempt an orderly liquidation of these well, – Presumably terms. the
0: answer is political. So let's move to that. Where we, uh, Our other topic for the rest of this conversation is um, a, a very depressing one <clears throat> for me and maybe for Arnold too. I don't know. He may enjoy it a little bit. I enjoy it a little bit. And that's the state of uh, macroeconomics in the wake of this. What I found striking about this um, – this whole crisis, and we're in the middle of it right now, it's certainly not, we're not out of the woods in in many, many dimensions. But what fascinates me is how little economics has to say about it. So when when the bailout was first proposed, a whole bunch of economists said it was a bad idea. I think 200 illustrious finance economists signed a letter saying, don't do it. A bunch of other illustrious economists said, it's a really good idea, do it. Now, that's not a big deal. The fact that People disagree about a particular policy. There's a hundred reasons why you might disagree about it. What I found striking was how little consensus there was about what might replace it. If you thought it wasn't the best idea, there were all kinds of suggestions that were made, but none of them were particularly compelling. Nobody had, I think that's why we got it, by the way, there was never a moment where there was a chance to rally round an alternative, those of us who were who were skeptical about the ability of government to solve these kind of problems argued, just wait. Let, let's just take our time. Let's I think you wrote, let's hold some hearings, let's get some information. But the consensus by a lot of political actors certainly was, and in many economists was, we can't wait. Right. It, 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 it's urgent. It's got to be fixed immediately. Even a bad solution is better than no solution at all. Very akin to the Great Depression, by the way. And as a result, uh, to me, economics at the macro level has been exposed. And, and I'm going to say one other thing and I'll let you, let you react. We talked about this a little bit before, before we started taping. And we've both written about this. A lot of what's going on right now is, is narrative building. People are trying to, to create a narrative. And I, I may have spoken about this a little bit in last week's podcast with Michael Munger. How could you test any of these narratives? The system... I mean, you and I have already now talked for almost two hours on the air, and we've talked for another hour or so off the air, and we've both written thousands of words, and we're just two of the people writing thousands of words. There's dozens of people writing thousands and thousands of words. None of this is testable. None of these narratives are very testable. It's such a complex system. How would you ever begin to adjudicate between the different theories that have been proposed for how we got here and what might get us out? Um it seems to me the only thing left is micro the only thing left is understanding that you know this policy is going to have this incentive for this group of actors but to suggest that we can rebuild the financial system from the bottom up is seems like a hopeless task.
1: Yeah well you've asked the toughest question first and so I'm tempted to dodge it you know <coughs> sort of how can we test this stuff um I something that comes to mind is Nineteen seventy one. Uh, you probably were an undergraduate. Yeah, was a junior. F- I was okay.
0: a junior in college.
1: Okay, I'm I'm a freshman. Oh, no, excuse me. I was a junior hey. in high school, in nineteen seventy one. Oh, Really? Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm 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 a freshman in college in the fall of seventy one, and that was an exciting time. Uh, it turned out the first semester of economics class at Swarthmore College, where I was, was macro. So I took took macro. Uh, one of our professors was uh, on leave at the Council of Economic Advisors, and they executed a policy that was right out of the latest textbooks. They the put counseled in, it. Yeah, they put in wage price controls. Oh yeah, that wasn't the council most so much. The council was was dragging their feet. But, yeah, <laughs> but the, the Treasury Secretary John Connolly, uh sort of the the Henry Paulson of his day. Uh, imposed wage pricing c- controls, and that was right out of the textbook. The textbooks had equations that could explain, you know, what would happen if different things happened, and the textbook view is that uh, inflation was caused by people fighting over income shares so that you were trying to raise your wage while I was trying to raise, raise my wage. And we neither of us took into account the fact that if we both raised our wages, prices would go up so our real wages wouldn't go up as much. And so we needed these wage price controls to stop, stop that.
0: Stop this this cycle that was yeah, the, spinning out of control. Yeah, this
1: market failure, <clears throat> this externality. Yeah, we, we had to deal with it. Um you know long story short they were a disaster it took 10 years to recover from them but sort of we thought we knew a lot and, and we were taking stuff straight out of the textbooks what's going on now is not on, out of any textbook that's right and it's and it's certainly not out of any graduate course uh there's no you know if i actually looked up uh there's a there's a, a book uh on the Great Depression, uh, that's an interview of sort of the modern economists. Uh, I'm I'll, I'm blanking on the author, which is horrible, but I'll will remember it.
0: We'll put a link up to it.
1: And the um, um, and I read I read the interview with Bernanke, and Bernanke basically says at the end, well, you know, all you really need to do is inflation targeting, and that is the to
0: key- to avoid
1: to, to avoid avoid, the to avoid a depression. That's all you need to do is and inflation mean targeting. Means. Print money at a rate so that inflation stays above, somewhere above zero, but presumably somewhere below like four or five percent, where it starts to get out of hand. That's all you have to do, and that is the absolute consensus in macroeconomics today. I mean, we've ju- I just saw this, I think, very ill-timed paper by Olivier Blanchard saying the state of macroeconomics is good, and he's describing the, how, we've, how we've achieved a consensus. And, and that in consensus would tell you that there's no way you would have a Great Depression as long as you did inflation targeting. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's talking about a Great Depression if you don't bail out the banks. Where did that come from? That's not in the textbooks. Uh, and That's not in the graduate courses. So I think, you know, I, I don't see any connection between macroeconomics and what's going on. You actually have some people pointing out that if you really believed some of the recent macro, that you wouldn't do anything. And perhaps recent macro may be right. For example, there's macro that says there's real business cycles, and the financial sector doesn't really affect the real economy. That would tell you you can just sit back and the economy –
0: It's like the shirt market. (laughs) If the
1: shirt market collapses, eh, so the shirt market collapses. Or the Internet. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like just another sector. It's just another sector. So it's just like okay, so the Internet stocks collapsed, we survived that. So a bunch of banks will go out of business, we'll survive that. It's not there's there's no transmission mechanism that's been demonstrated between the financial sector and the real and the real economy. That that's one point of view, and that may be valid. I mean so far we have not had twenty percent unemployment or things like that. It's early though. It's early. We'll see. I don't uh, think we will, but yeah, I, I'm, there are a lot
0: of things I didn't think we'd see, and we're
1: seeing yeah, them. So, but I'm I'm actually more nervous about uh, about Paulson and Bernanke being the disease that they purport to cure on right, that yeah, one than, than uh, so uh, so we don't have um, you know so what we're doing has nothing to do with textbooks and. The, what theory we have might suggest to do nothing, that you don't have to do anything. You either have to do infl- – all you have to do is inflation target with monetary policy, or you may not have to do anything because the real and the financial sector aren't that c- closely linked.
0: Which reminds me of another issue I think I've learned about from you, which is the um, the great man theory of politics uh, – you know one view of of politics is that you just need the right people in power uh, as i've talked about on the show before the uh, public choice theory tends to say it's the incentives and what i've learned from you is this nice way of putting it which is you know, which i think is is very insightful that you really don't want to rely on picking the right person you you want a system that doesn't require picking the right person so, and so you know it's ironic because my non economist friends come up to me and they say boy it 's a good thing you know of all the people you 'd want at the head of the Fed, who could be better than Ben Bernanke because Bernanke was this authority on the Great Depression, and in theory that 's a great point right here 's of all the people you 'd want he is probably the guy you 'd pick ex ante he 's yeah. the guy and and the similar conversation you hear is you know who would um, again we 're taping this on October." uh 24th uh, uh, 10 days or so before the election you know who would who would obama and McCain pick as their treasury secretary that's the key question yeah. and, and and isn't it strange i've wondered that, that that they haven't named who that person wouldn't that be wise to pick who that person would be as if those two people the chair of the fed and the treasury secretary could through their great wisdom steer us through this crisis and it seems extremely unlikely
1: yeah i you know i that brings up this topic of sort of the knowledge power discrepancy. Uh, my view is that knowledge is becoming more and more dispersed. You know, I, I mentioned this, the suits geeks divide. You know, the people who really understand the behavior of, of mortgage securities are buried so low in organizations throughout the country that no one hears their voice, and the people. Uh, who have the power don't have the knowledge. Even Bernanke and Paulson really don't understand mortgage credit risk. And, and you know, it's it, a few weeks ago we heard that this seven hundred billion dollars was going to go to buy mortgage securities. That whole plan somehow dissolved a in a week. It, it, it dissolved in a week. So and
0: instead it was. It was the first 125 billion, and, and perhaps the second 125, has gone into capitalizing banks. Yeah. that were at risk of failure, and were told that they had to go out and and and, and use the money. Yeah. it's so horrifying.
1: It's it, yeah, it's it, so it's completely made up. It, it completely. To me, it, it shows that they didn't know. I mean, it, if they knew three weeks ago that these assets were undervalued and that buying these assets was going to cure the problem, then why did they completely turn around and, and choose a different policy today? So um, to me, that's the most kind of fascinating and indeed frightening Thing going on is that I believe that knowledge in the economy has become more and more dispersed. Going back to 1971, why were wage and price controls even plausible? Well, in World War II, we had wage and price controls, and John Kenneth Galbraith was actually part of the uh, bureaucracy doing Mm -hmm. that, and he later was a big champion of wage and price controls. And they worked in World War II. You had a simple enough economy that you could have wage and price controls and not completely. Wreck the economy. It 19- worked in the
0: sense that they didn't that the that the costs were not transparent. <laughs>
1: well, and, and, and but the economy didn't really grind to a halt, uh, and it didn't really the they were manageable. The bureaucrats didn't say this is ridiculous. We can't even we can't even do this anymore. Whereas with the Nixon wage and price controls, it can't it, came, it reached that point where the bureaucrats said. Hey, we don't even have the knowledge to do this. We're we're in over our heads. We have got to get out. And uh, and, and so, so I see the trend in the economy is getting more and more complex, harder and harder for any one person to understand. Just look at any body of knowledge. You know, look at medicine. You know, no doctor can keep track of everything in medicine. You know, the you know nobody can keep track of all of science. Well, the, the world is just getting more and more complex, more and more specialized, more and more difficult for one person to know everything. So this dis- dispersion of knowledge, and yet in this crisis we reach for concentration of power. We say, can't we just give Henry Paulson and Ben Bernanke all the power they need to solve so this? So they
0: can fix it. So yeah. they
1: can fix it, so that we can, we, we, if we centralize power, take, put more power in Washington, then, th- then we'll be safer And fundamentally, I think that's wrong. I think that this is, you know, that Hayek is right that markets are a way of solving information problems when information is dispersed, and we really ought to be looking for a Hayekian solution rather than a centralized solution for this.
0: But there's two aspects of the Hayekian dispersion here that I think are important to keep separate, and I think you've maybe merged them unintentionally. One is. <clears throat> what institutional structure or policy might make things better might be a step toward stability might be a step toward financial markets uh, working more effectively The second is and that i 'm not sure if that knowledge is dispersed that knowledge just might not be out there um, and that
1: 's really the state of macro that I think is, is that's, disturbing that 's a good point i think yeah nobody knows how to how to put together a central plan for the financial system and yet that's what everyone's insisting that we that need. We, do. We, we need a new financial architecture. A new, right,
0: exactly. And this is what, <laughs> by the way, ironically, this is what we tried to do in Eastern Europe to a large extent after the, the Berlin Wall fell. That We all said, most of us, a few smart people didn't, but most of us said, oh, this is easy. We just need to give them markets. Without realizing that, quote, creating markets as opposed to letting them sort of stumble forward as as we uh, talked about recently with Mike Munger in the Prisoner work Camp. Markets do emerge, but trying to create them explicitly and in the institutions that support them uh, is a cake that we don't have the recipe to. And, and it's a cake that needs to be baked in a certain order with a certain set of – we know the ingredients. We know it goes into the cake. We know it has to do with the rule of law and and we know it has to do with honest courts and we know it has to do with contracts and and we know it has to do with freedom of of, to enter and exit into those contracts. But how you get from nothing to something is is quite a bit harder, as we found out in many, many in the development world as well in developing world as well. So so one level of of ignorance is how to create those institutions.
1: And, and, and just to build on that, again, where did this failure occur? It occurred in this industrial policy sector where we had the most concentrated power of you know where Washington did more to direct mortgage indebtedness and and home ownership than Any in other most, other sec- most other sectors of the economy. So we, w- in some sense, we've tried central architecture, and it was the central architecture that ultimately collapsed. And that, I, you'd no, think I've, that would be humbling.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. well, that's why I think the biggest challenge, and I've written about this, I know you have too, is is to, instead of trying to figure out how do we recreate what we had before, how do we recreate something that doesn't have the systemic, some of the systemic problems of what we had before? The idea that we would allow... Uh, housing markets to be undirected um, without uh, a champion via the mortgage uh, deductibility of mortgage interest, uh, enormous quasi-public, quasi-private entity like Fannie and Freddie to create the secondary mortgage market, to recognize that those were part of the problem and say, you know, maybe that's not a good idea. That's a level we haven't gotten to yet, and I think it's it would be nice if we could get there. But the second level of knowledge I want to ask about, so I agree with all you said, but Second thing I think is important is that one of the levels of dispersed knowledge is that there are assets that are undervalued and there are assets that are overvalued and some of those and, and there there are uh, financial institutions that need to go broke and there are others that need to grow because they didn't make these mistakes and they they should be scooping up these undervalued assets and in, and ineffective in firms and it seems to me that unless that happens. Whatever emerges in the aftermath of this is going to really be crippling to our our capital market.
1: And but and what it, we're going to have in the short run in oh, sorry sorry and and
0: and there isn't a good knowledge.
1: No central planner,
0: no Paul said, no Bernanke knows exactly what's on that list.
1: Absolutely, uh, but in the short run, they are such big players and such aggressive players that everyone else has to go on the sidelines. I mean. It, you know, how can you buy stock in American firm now knowing that Paulson and Bernanke could shake it down at any point? Uh, we, you know, the rules of our financial system have been completely thrown out the window. It's just, it's, it's, it's a rule of men, not rule of law situation in our financial markets now. And so everyone has to be on pause. I think if you're, you know, if you're if you've got money to invest, would you? Do you know how to deploy your your personal investment at this point? Do you have any idea?
0: Uh, I, I did rebalance my portfolio a couple of weeks ago after one of the plunges. But I'm taking, I think, the attitude that most people are taking, which is sit back and wait don't know what to do. What's better than what you're doing now? Right. No one has any idea what it would be. There's no right. obvious choice.
1: Right. And and I think that the sit back and wait is exactly what banks you know people you know Paulson has the nerve and the and the and Senator Schumer has the nerve to say, gosh, we're injected all this capital in banks you and you're not lending. Well, what are they supposed to do? <laughs> they, how are they supposed to know where to turn when they when the government is going to be making up the rules? Uh it's the new hard president coming
0: I, into office it's going to could totally change everything.
1: And, you know, how do you make long term decisions, long term commitments in that kind of environment? So um, you know, that's a very pessimistic note to sound, but that's that's the way I see it.
0: My guest today has been Arnold Kling of uh, EconLog. Arnold, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks, Ross.